Father, we bow before you today and we give you thanks that you've called us out of darkness into light. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would enable us to set aside all the other things that can so easily occupy our mind and our attention, and that we would give you our full attention today, that we might be able to glean from your word those things that will enable us to see the world as you want us to see it, and not as uh, all of the other world rules around us would try to shape us and, and form us into their mindset. So, Lord, we just ask that you would be here in our midst today, that you would uh, teach us, that you would direct us, that you would enable us to appreciate again the power of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are going to be looking quickly, uh, kind of review some of this, the flood. uh, In Genesis 6 and following, we find this developed. The flood is really presented, in a sense, as a new creation. Uh, What God did in Genesis in creating the world, in a sense, as he destroys all of life, he creates a new world, and Noah becomes the new Adam. Uh, the second Adam. And the broken covenant uh, with uh, Adam is now going to uh, be uh, revamped and redone. So it's important that we uh, take a moment and just review what we've said before. A covenant is cut. That's the term that the Bible uses. You don't just make a covenant, you cut a covenant, and you're going to see why that is. It's, it's, it's involved in actually the sacrifice of the animal. We're going to look at that in the example of uh, Abraham. We see that in Genesis 2 and Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is where the, uh, God actually cuts the covenant with Abraham. However, when we come to the Noahic covenant, it doesn't say it's cut. It says it's established or it's confirmed. And that has the idea of linking it back to the, the uh, covenant that was made with Adam. You know, if there hadn't been one there, then he couldn't say the Noahic was in some sense confirming, you know, or establishing that. And so we, we gives us a hint that the relationship that God had with Adam was a covenantal relationship that now is going to be reestablished or confirmed, and you're going to see that in Genesis 6 and 9. So the terms of the covenant are important. We're talking about the Noah covenant. And remember, just as a quick overview, we're suggesting that the covenants really form kind of the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. You can't understand what's going on if you don't understand these covenants. And so when we look at the covenant that was made with Noah, uh, the very same thing that he said to Adam, be fruitful and fill the earth. You remember the statement, we're going to make man in our image, be fruitful, you know, uh, exercise dominion over the world. Says the same thing to Noah. He says the animals are going to fear you, and now they become food. Up to this point of time, they have been vegans. You know, now they become uh, those who are going to uh, use the animals that God provides for food. And then he says also that human life is sacred. And it demands an accounting. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, 
I think it's also important to notice, this is very striking to me, the parties to the covenant. Who is the covenant with? It's between God and Noah and his descendants. Again, I wish we had time to read each of the passages to see it jump out, but if you go through that, you'll see those words in Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his descendants. So this is not just made with Noah, but Noah and all of his descendants. That includes us, okay? We are part of that group. But also with every living creature. Now this is striking. God is making a covenant with every living creature. And then he's going to go on to say he makes a covenant with the earth and all life on earth. Now that's pretty broad, you know, there's, there's uh, hardly anything that gets through the crack there. So this, uh, this covenant that God makes is going to be a covenant with Noah's descendants with everything that has life on this earth. Now the promise, I don't know how to make this as dramatic and as powerful as it actually is in scripture, but to recognize that the eternal creator God is making a promise that he's going to do something for Noah, it really is an amazing thing. And so what we have in this is several promises. The first is the promise that the earth is going to be preserved as the stage. That is, it's never going to be destroyed again. God destroyed it once because of sin. He's not going to do that again. And so it is God obligating himself. He doesn't have to do that, but he's obligating himself. You see his grace even behind that to say, okay, it's, it's not going to be destroyed. It means that there is no future global judgment by a flood. That's not going to happen again. Other things might happen, but that's not going to happen, and it hasn't happened. The rainbow will be the sign. There's more than the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, I still remember at my uh, 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 niece's wedding in, uh, uh, right near um, uh, in New York, we had a double rainbow. You know, it was as bright a double rainbow as I've ever seen. Well, God sets those things in the sky. You know, and, and there really isn't a word in Hebrew for rainbow, and so it's a bow, like a bow and arrow. And one of the things, one of the uh, uh, things I read said, you know, the bow is pointing up, so God is never pointing it down, shooting it at us, you know. But instead, we have this uh, a sign actually in the heavens itself to remind us that we can count on God, that we can depend on God. And so what that means is there is this sense of perpetuity. It's going to continue. The Noahic covenant doesn't begin and end. When we look at uh, the Mosaic covenant in a couple of weeks, it has a starting point. It's Sinai. It ends at Jesus Christ. Galatians is going to make that crystal clear. But this now, it takes effect with Noah it's going to continue in effect until the consummation, until Christ returns, and it means there's a fresh start and a clean slate. You know, because of sin, God wiped everyone out, and he starts afresh with Noah. So what does it mean? Let's look at this for a second. The perpetuity of the covenant 
I, I wish we had time to go through each of these in more detail, but let me point out to you, there are at least three places in the Old Testament where other passages go back and refer to the perpetuity of the covenant. In Isaiah 24, 3 through 5, the Noahic covenant is called an everlasting covenant. It's going to go on and on and on. Isaiah 54.9, it calls it the covenant of peace, 54.9 and 10. If we look at Jeremiah 33, he talks about the covenant with day and night. In each of those passages, it reflects back to what God was doing uh, with uh, Noah at the very beginning, what we call the Noahic covenant. Now, we, we kind of went through that. That's just a quick summary review uh, I want you to look at what happens. You remember in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, uh, anyone have trouble following the directions? Don't eat of it. The day you eat it, you're going to die. Eve saw the tree, you know, wanted it, uh, said it's going to make us wise, listened to uh, uh, Satan, and they took of the tree, and there was this suddenly everything changes. And he failed in his commission to be the steward of the Garden of Eden. And now uh, we're going to look at Noah. Noah replaces him. He becomes the second Adam. And so in one sense, you know, it is God's mercy. The flood stops. The ark comes to a rest. You can read this in Genesis 8, Genesis 7 and 8, 9. The ark comes to a rest. The land dries out. You love the story. I remember as a child in Sunday school, you know, the dove and the ray. I know, what was it? The, the, the he sent out the, the, the different ones. Finally, the dove comes back with the, the olive uh, in her beak. Uh, God brings Noah out of the ark. God's pleased with Noah's sacrifice. Remember, Noah presented a sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord. And then what happens? Well, Adam's failure is paralleled with Noah's failure. Adam was in a garden. Uh, Noah plants a vineyard. That's not a bad thing. Uh, I love raisins. I love grapes. Uh, but it's more than just that. Uh, he made that into wine, and he was involved in this drunken stupor. Now, very interesting, if you read the account, he is laying there naked, and his son Cain comes in to see him. Remember back in the garden? Adam and Eve were naked, and they sowed fig trees. You know, And I, I want you to see the connection. These are not just different things. There is a line that goes through all of these. And what happens is, you know, his one son goes in the looks and goes and tells the other brothers. The other brothers come and bring some kind of covering, and they cover Adam. I wish we had more time to look at the blessing and the curse. You know, uh, uh, Cain is the one, or um, uh, Ham is the one, sorry, let me get the names right. Ham is the one that receives the, the curse that he is going to serve in the house of his brothers, and uh, uh, the others are going to enjoy the blessing. Um, but we, we don't have time to develop that. Uh, but look at this for a moment. We need to understand the flood 
as a type. We've, we've talked about typology. We see this throughout, whether it's the Sabbath. Here we're looking at the flood. What's it a type of? It's connected back to creation. God created the world. In fact, uh, Peter says he created it out of water. You know, by a word, it came into being. You can read the account earlier. It's connected back to creation, but it points forward to Christ. You know, and this rescue of Noah and his wife and his children is a picture of a rescue that points forward ultimately to the messianic rescue that we have in Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, uh, we have a clear text of scripture that talks about that in 1 Peter 3.18. Baptism saves just as the ark was a tool of saving, of rescuing Adam and Eve in the Old Testament, so that again becomes something that links this together. And again, I want you to see it's not as though this happened and this happened and there's no connection. You see the flow throughout, and it helps us understand again that it's not like God said, uh, okay, I am going to, uh, I I like to do woodworking. Uh, I'm going to make a table, and I start making it, and I cut the wood wrong and say, you know what, I'm going to make a bookshelf. You know, and I start to do that, and I mess up and say, you know what, I'm going to put a plaque on the wall, and by the time I'm done, you know, I have a little piece left that I haven't messed up, and I decide to leave it alone, let somebody else do something with it. Okay, God's not like that. It's not like in, in the garden, he expected Adam to do one thing, and he did something else. Do you remember what we said? We, we have the uh, Yahweh uh, 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 director's chair up here. God wrote this before it ever happened. And so the fall in the garden was not a surprise to God. That was according to God's plan. So when Noah follows the same pattern, uh, it's not like, oh no, what do I do now? I want you to see that each of these things fit in a pattern that God is moving that ultimately is going to bring us to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so the 1 Peter 3 passage links together the the rescue of of Noah and his family through the ark with its its fulfillment, its uh, antitype in the New Testament, which is the water of baptism. Lots of questions here, and again, John's the expert on this, so if you have any questions about that, you can see him, and he'll be glad to help straighten you out. But I want to say a word uh, about the Tower of Babel. We need to say more about this, because in, in Genesis 11, This is perhaps the darkest hour that we have in all of Scripture. It's like we started with Adam, and it got messed up, and then God destroys all of mankind because the evil was continually at work. And now we have a second Adam, and he presents a sacrifice, and God is pleased, and then He gets drunk and and this drunken stupor, and now he's not going to be able to continue as the, uh, the representative, as the steward of God's creation. And so we go through this, and we have in chapter 10 the table of all the different people, and then in chapter 11 we have the tower 
of Babel. It's east of Eden. Uh, every time when Adam was thrown out of the garden, he went east. You know, and then uh, Cain went further east. And so the sense is they're moving farther away, and they enjoyed a common speech and language. Okay, so you have people multiplying and 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 people speaking together, and then. They're scattering eastward. God wants them to scatter, uh, directs them to do that. The plain of Shinar is Babylon. And there is this sense, though, of insecurity. We need to hang together. We don't need to spread out and populate there. We need to stay together. And there is a sense of arrogance here that we got to make a name for ourselves. Now, I know that none of you would think like that, right? I'm going to make a name for myself. I want people to notice me and and how much I know or how much I own or how uh, uh, good-looking I am or whatever it is. That is built into, you know, the depraved nature. Once sin takes hold, we see that in Genesis 3, so you have insecurity, you have arrogance. Well, what's the problem? God is going to make a name for himself. Isn't that what this is all about from the beginning? So that God is going to be glorified, and the focus is going to be, not who am I, what did I do, what do I know, what do I have, what have I accomplished, but instead it's going to be on God. Look at God. Look at what God has done. And throughout Scripture, that is always the focus. Look at God. God's going to make a name for himself. On the other hand... What does man say? We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to accomplish something. We want to leave a legacy. We want to establish something that is amazing. And you can read about that in, uh, uh, in chapter 11. Let me read just a few of these verses here to give the sense of this. Chapter 11 says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So that's their plan. Uh, What is it? We're going to unite centralized power and resources. Okay, We want to make sure that we have everything that we need. We're going to build a tower that's going to go up to heaven. Very interesting what you read of the pathetic futility uh, that was inferior construction. It was bricks. It was not stone. Uh, it was tar, it was not mortar, and I always love this. The height of the structure is going to reach into heaven, and what does the text say? But the Lord came down to see the city. It's not like it went right through heaven. You know, they thought, man, we're going to build this thing, we're going to go right through heaven, going to go right on by, and God has to come and look down to find where this thing is. You know, and again, it's a great sense that that what we think is great and wonderful, God looks at that and kind of snickers. 
smiles. I don't know if God snickers. But God recognizes the foolishness. It's going to reach to heaven, but he has to come down to find it. So what is this all about? Well, God said their success will destroy them. This, again, it's not just God is jealous that he's not getting the attention. He knows that these plans, again, any of you heard of the Great Reset? You know, that we're going through and the things that are happening globally, we're going to unite everything, everything is going to be under one thing. Well, it didn't start recently. It goes all the way back. Uh, and God said, if they succeeded, that's going to destroy them. So we're going to confuse their language. Now, isn't it interesting when you come to Acts 2 that God is taking the languages and so everyone can hear it, you know, in the, their same language? Again, you see the connection running throughout. We're going to confuse their language. So God acted, and he confused their language, and he scattered the people, and he stopped the building of that. Now, God did that at that point of time. It's a remarkable thing. But I call this the darkest hour. Chapter 11, if you read through the rest of it, there is no promise, there is no hope, there is no direction. If the Bible ended at Genesis 11, our, our whole perspective would be so very different from that. Humanity's darkest hour, we're going to do this on our own, but God confuses the languages and they're scattered but here's the good news. The drama doesn't end here. This is not the last act in this drama. God will make a name for himself. Uh, they're not going to make a name. God will make a name. God will find a man. Okay? Adam, you know, first Adam, he's down. Second Adam, you know, he's down. But God's going to raise another Adam, somebody that's going to be able to accomplish that. And listen, God's going to keep his promise. What's the promise that he made? The seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent. Even though it's going to bite his heel, it's going to crush the head. God's going to keep his promise. And what I want you to see, and we're going to look at that in just a moment as we come to Abraham, the promise is often formalized in the form of a covenant. The same way you make a promise, but then you sign on the line and it's notarized to give it a sense of, of it being official, being legal. We're going to say that same thing. God not only makes a promise, but he's going to do that in the form of a covenant. God will come to his people. Uh, okay, let's go on to... Uh, Sorry, I have to make a quick transition here, uh, uh, but, but let, me, let me pause here before we go on and look at Father Abraham. Okay, let me just quick review. We, we talked about why would God create the world. He wants to provide a stage in which he can stage his love, his mercy, his grace. The king and queen, Adam and Eve, they are put in a position of authority. They fail miserably. Then the plot thickens. God raises up a second Adam. Noah, Noah flames out. And when we come to Genesis 11, it sounds like this is the end. But then there's a man. His name is Abram. 
and uh, he is going to be the channel of blessing. We could literally spend months talking about Abraham. I can't tell you how important Abraham is to everything that's happening. And we're going to try, we're not going to get through all of this today. In fact, I told April before, is there any way we can slow down the time, you know, during this hour uh, so that we can see this? And again, I, I hope you get the sense of how powerful this is. I don't want you to miss one bit of this. And my wife through the years has said, you don't give up. You know, you're, you're, you're putting the, you know, the, the fire hose in somebody's mouth. But it's so good. I don't want you to miss any part of it. And this is the heart of it. The very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you have Abraham, David, Jesus Christ. Those are the three covenants, you know, that, that are important. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant with Jesus Christ. It all flows together. So you may not have known what Abraham looks like, but I found a picture of him, uh, so that may help you. Uh, we're we're going to look at six things. Uh, I mean, there's eight things we're going to look at here. And so I, I want to set them out before we do that. First of all, countering Babel and planting hope. How do we get beyond that? The second part of that is the father of promise. Abraham becomes the one that God's promises are going to be realized. And then a covenant is cut. Genesis 15 is remarkable uh, in uh, this, this covenant that's cut, God walking through it with a fire pot. We'll look at that. The covenant sign, circumcision. We're always a little uneasy, you know, talking about circumcision. But that's an important part in Genesis chapter 17. And then we have the covenant task, blessing. Uh, I can't tell you how moved I was again. Let me, let me put pull up a book. I read this years ago by Christopher Wright called The Mission of God. He has the best thing I've ever read about blessing. And uh, we'll say more about that later. We often use that word as kind of a throwaway. It means anything and everything. But when you understand what blessing is, you're going to appreciate the fact that what God promised, he's going to fulfill. So the covenant task is blessing. Then you have the covenant oath. God is going to swear, you know, not in the sense of cursing, you know, but swear an oath that he's going to do what he said. Then you have the mission of God, which is the church. You're going to see how that's all connected. What God gave to Abraham to do, we are fulfilling that and carrying that out. And then we're going to look finally at the promised seed. If Abram is the father... Remember what Galatians says, not seeds as of many, but to one seed, and that is Jesus Christ. So let's just quickly, we walked through this already, I'll just quickly go through this. Darkness shrouds the earth, hopelessness prevails, we're going to make a name, God says, I'm going to make Abraham's name great. And so what happens, we said the language is confused, Total misunderstanding, project is scuttled, people are scattered, cultural barriers are erected, and welcome to life in the world as a result of that. But in the midst of that, there is hope. And this is where we make the transition, a fresh start. 
Okay, we got a new Adam. We had Adam, and then we had Noah, the second Adam, and then we have Abram, a second Adam, from the second Adam uh, of Noah, and then we have a new creation. You know, it, it, it brings order out of the utter chaos. And what's very interesting to me is when you look at Adam had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Now, there were more, but those were the three main ones. Noah had three sons. You know, isn't that interesting? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And then Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And our focus is going to be on the first of those, on Abram himself. And so what you have with Abram is this promised future. There is a future ahead. It's not like this is going to end. And here's what I want you to see. Abram was not the one who was just going to be the recipient of God's blessing. Abram was going to be the channel of God's blessing. It was going to come to Abram, and through him it's going to spread out. Throughout all the world, this, this fruitful rest, there's this global dimension, this divine initiative. Now listen to this. Get hold of this. God is going to bless, but he's going to bless through an instrument, and that instrument is going to be Abram. And he becomes the key in, in, in restoring and opening up all that God is doing. So let's look for a moment, at the Father of Promise. You have to turn to Genesis 12. It is so critical that you see this passage. Uh, I want to say, if you don't understand Genesis 12, put the rest of the Bible down. It's not going to make sense, because here is the heart of it. And God speaks to Abraham in chapter 12. Let me read the words itself. The Lord said to Abram, Remember, it's not Abraham yet. His name is going to be changed to that. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Okay, it begins with a command. You notice on here, command is C, promise is P. So you have a command. The command is go. Uh, Leave your, your country, your people, go to the land that I'll show you. So God gives him a command, and then notice the promise. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Okay, here are three promises. It's a land, it's a seed, it's a blessing. That's what God is going to do through Abram. Now, when you read the next phrase, I'm reading from the NIV, it says, and you will be a blessing. Okay? Cross that out. This is not a statement of what will happen. This is another command. The first command is to go. The second command is to be a blessing. He's telling them now, you have the responsibility to be the channel of blessing that's going to go out to all the world. And then you have these promises. As you bless others, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. In you, all the nations will be blessed. 
Boy, now focus on that last statement. In you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. God's blessing is not directed to one person or one nation. It is universal. And so the gospel goes out to all the world. That's where this is going. So it's important you see at the beginning, this is just a promise. This isn't a covenant yet, but this is a promise. Go, and I am going to uh, 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 give you a great name. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. And so throughout the Old Testament, we talk about the promised land, right? Or the promised seed, or the promised blessing that's going to come. So it's so important that you get hold of this text of Scripture and recognize, think about this now, after the failure of Adam, after the failure of Noah, now comes Abram, and God is saying, I'm making you a promise. I'm going to make this thing happen. Now, think about the fact that after Adam's failure, and then everything became so bad, God destroyed the earth, we're going to make a new start. So he starts with Noah, and before it even gets started, it goes bad. And so it becomes apparent this thing isn't going to work by putting a person there who's going to be able to pull this off. Everyone is going to fail because of the depth of sin. I've often said this before. Sin is not like a zit on the end of your nose. You know, you can pop that out. It's like cancer in the bone. There's no easy solution to that. And friends, listen to me, that's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with some kind of irritation in the end of our nose. We're dealing with something inside that eats us away. And if God doesn't step in and do this, it's not going to get done. If you're going to depend on Abraham, you're going to find out, you know what? You know, he's going to tell the king, this is my sister over here. And he takes her into his harem. He does that twice. You know, we, we see Abram as this great man of faith. But boy, he, he came up short a lot of points along the way. Let me just point out three texts of Scripture that emphasize this. Again, they deserve to be looked at in more detail. Psalm 105, 42. God remembered his holy promise that he made to Abram. Okay, throughout, God doesn't forget that. Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. See how important this promise is back there? Galatians 3.8, God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. You see how central, how key Abraham is in all of this? So the promises of God, there are three essentially that he talks about. Land, there's going to be a home, there's going to be a place where his people are going to form into a nation. And that's essentially what happens under the covenant made at Sinai. There's going to be blessing. 
there's a seed. If you go back to the beginning, the word blessing, in fact, you know, I, I went through the first part of Genesis. I think I came about to the first 20 uses of the word blessing. And blessing begins with a sense of, of fruitfulness, of, of, of bounty, of, of enjoying the good things. And so we have the promise that there is a future coming. It's important for us to understand this and grab hold of this because it doesn't feel like that a lot of times. When you're living in the world, if you know what's going on in the world today, it's easy to say, where's God? Why doesn't God step in and do this? Why doesn't he stop those who are promoting this evil agenda? But we know, in fact, somebody came in earlier, and I said, you know what? It's going to get better. You know why? Satan's time is running down. You know, and when that time ends, there's going to be a final consummation, and we're going to see all that God has done. He also gave him a name. You know, he's, in a sense, royalty, as with Adam and as with Noah. In fact, I was struck by this. Do you know there are only three times in the Scripture that anyone says they have a great name? The first one is Abraham. You know who the second one is? David. You know, 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to give you a great name. You know the third one is? Jesus Christ. You know, it doesn't go back to Matthew 1, the son of uh, David, the son of Abraham. And, and he's going to give him a great name. And you can't, you know, as you go throughout Scripture, you're going to run into Abraham again and again and again. So this promise that we have in Genesis chapter 12 it's going to become a covenant. God is going to cut a covenant here. That is, he's going to formally establish that. Now, go with me to Genesis 15. Uh, this is such a key chapter. Uh, in, in chapter 13, you have Abram and Lot separate. Chapter 14, remember Abram goes after and rescues Lot after he gets captured, uh, and that's where the great section on Melchizedek, I almost feel like we're cheating, you know, to get, to skip by these things. The whole book of Hebrews is about Melchizedek, and it ties all the pieces together. Then we come to chapter 15. Let's look at this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Okay, God's made the promise years before. Now the Lord comes to him and says that. Now watch Abram. I like Abram. He was a cool guy. Uh, he's a lot like you and I. But Abram said, okay, what did God say? Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you, let me put my eyes on, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? You know, it's his, his assistant that's going to be, you haven't given me a, a son. You know, this is Abram's complaint. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be thy heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, 
Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited him as righteousness. It's one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. He believed God. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. Okay, I'm going to give you the land. But Abram said, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession? I don't own the land. It's not mine. You know, I'm, I'm here as a, a sojourner. So the Lord said, Then bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, if you know anything, uh, Pastor Paul uh, recently talked about the Day of Atonement and the kind of sacrifices they brought. These are the very sacrifices that later are going to feature at the center of the, the, the worship of God and the sacrifices there to bring. So Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Abram drove them, Abram drove them away. Now, get the picture. God is in this interchange with Abram. He says, now bring me the animals. They cut the animals, and so you have bloody animal parts on this side, bloody animal parts on this side. Now, the reason they use the term cut a covenant is because of the nature of sacrifice. Remember, Hebrews says, without shedding of blood, no remission of sin. You know, that's woven throughout the storyline. And so you have these, these uh, uh, bloody sacrificial animals on either side. Now, the common practice, you can read this later in Jeremiah, is that the parties of the covenant would walk between them. And they would say, in effect, if I violate this covenant... May what happened to these animals happen to me. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at, look at the passage. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Have you ever noticed the number of times in the Old Testament where a deep sleep came? Remember when uh, David, uh, when uh, Saul was after David, and David fell asleep and all of his army? You know, a number of times God does that. Well, he does that here. Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Sound like what happened in Egypt? Of course. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. How you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now listen to this. When the sun had set, darkness had fallen, Abram is asleep in this deep sleep. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, uh, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and all the mosquito bites and the rest. I won't read them all to you, okay? Now, you get the picture? You have these animals, bloody animals, a smoking fire pot and a flame. Who's that? 
God himself. Abram's not walking through that because he's not going to be able to keep this. And one of the most powerful things that you see in all of this is the sense of God is taking the full responsibility on himself. He's going to see that this thing comes through. And as you go throughout Scripture, do you notice again and again and again the failures? Read through, you know, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. It's hard to find a king that you don't hate, you know, saying, what is this guy? Why is he doing this? You know, from Ahab and Jezebel to all the rest of them. And here's the thing. Even the very best are going to fall short. And the message in this, if there's going to be a rescue, guess what? God's going to have to step in and do this. Now, we don't know quite how he's going to do it yet, but it's going to develop. So, in this passage, let me just summarize what we just looked at. God assures Abram of his promise. I would be suspicious, I would be a little nervous if I were and say, wait a minute, you made these promises, but... I still, you know, I'm, I'm getting up in years. Remember, Abram's 100 years old when uh, his son Isaac is born. Abram registers his doubt. We need to have more room in our worship, in our Christian life, to lament and to share those doubts. I love the fact that Abram was honest. And he said, okay, you know, you know whatever you say, que sera, sera. Now, Abraham said, wait a minute, I hear what you say, but I don't have a son. I don't have the land. There, there's no heir. I don't have the land. What does God do? He reassures Abram and says, your offspring's going to be like the stars, like the sand by the seashore. The land promise is going to be delivered. Trust me in this. Uh, that's hard for us, isn't it? To be still. But God's going to make this blood covenant, that's what we looked at, actually the cutting of the covenant, the animals killed and divided. God speaks to Abraham in this deep sleep. And what does God do? He cuts a covenant with Abram by walking between the bloody animals. Now this is not the last time that God and blood are going to be connected. And it's going to point forward to what happens on the cross, where Jesus' blood is shed. But it doesn't end there. It's when he goes through the heavens and enters into the heavenly tabernacle that this blood is going to be presented. And his life now is going to be a surety for everything that undergirds who we are. So what happens there is called a self-maledictory oath. Now, I know you talk about that all the time at work, right? So I thought I'd throw it up here. So understand, malediction is calling a curse on you, and God essentially is saying, you know, may I be cursed if I don't follow through with this. Abraham couldn't do that. And so it's a, it's a very interesting concept. I, I sent out a, and, and by the way, let me just say this while I'm thinking about it. 
I'm sending out material to you along the way. If you don't have time to read it, you don't want to read it, that's fine. Just set it aside. Uh, uh, but I, I do, I have sheets on both corners back there. If I don't have your email address, you won't get those. Some of you may not have been here last week. In fact, uh, there's uh, one mic I need to get. I couldn't read your, your email on there, so I need to get that again. And I saw that your email in the directory is different than that, so let me make sure I get that from you. If anyone here wants to get that, please put that on the sheet, and I'll make sure that that goes out. So anyhow, getting back to this, the, the, uh, God alone accepts the responsibility for keeping the covenant. And, and that underscores all that the scripture says. It, it's not the people that are going to succeed at this. It's God that's going to succeed. And Abram is going to have a family and a land as it was promised to him. Now, again, we gotta, we got to stop here for today. I want to encourage you. I, I can't tell you how blessed I was yesterday. I spent most all of yesterday reading through again the section in Genesis 12 through 24, 25, Abram, Abraham actually dies. It will really help you get hold of this. And, and I sat down and read a couple of uh, things yesterday, Christopher Wright's book and, and uh, Gentry and um, uh, Wellam's treatment of this. There is so much here. I wish that I could just take all that, that, you know, God's put in my heart and I could, you know, I could transfer that like a transfusion. You know, I don't know how to do that. I'm trying to do that up here. But I, I don't want you just to think about I want you to feel this. Man, this is so profound. And it's the foundation of the gospel that God takes a man God takes a man from Ur the Chaldees, an idolater, and he finds favor. And through this man, he's not only going to be blessed, he's going to be the channel that's going to bless everyone else. All the nations of the earth. Is there any connection to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son? Of course, you see the connection of what God is doing. And when you come to this section in Genesis, as I said, you miss this, you don't have a clue what the Bible's all about. And I want you to know it, but I want you to feel it. I want this to settle in your heart and be able to praise God and say, imagine that God would be the one walking between those bloody animals. He's going to see that this is done. I think of the, the passage in Isaiah 5 about the barren vine that God's going to cut down. And you come to John 15, Jesus said, I'm the true vine. My father's a husbandman. Every branch connected to me is going to bear fruit. Those that don't are going to be cut off and thrown away. And friends, it's all connected together. That what God is doing with Abraham, it finds its fulfillment in Christ, in us. And we just have the, the appetizer. You know, we haven't got to the main meal, the marriage supper of the land. Now, lamb is going to be beyond our ability to appreciate. Well, I'm going to be in double trouble today. I've gone way over. Uh, let's pause in prayer. Just ask God to stir our hearts with this. Father, how we pray today 
that you would enable us, not just to know in an intellectual way, but Father, you would enable us in our hearts to resonate with what a gracious God you are. That in spite of consistent failure of Adam and then Noah, and even with Abraham and with David and with Moses, Ultimately, you're going to bring one who won't fail, and that's our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to get a glimpse and to feel the wonder and the joy of what you're doing in this great scheme of redemption. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.